This episode is presented by oh, our friends at New Balance Independent. Since 1906, New Balance empowers people through sport and craftsmanship to create positive change in communities around the world. New Balance, we got now. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Price Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to get in on the action while you watch your favourite sports and players. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. New Year's is now in the rearview mirror. By now, some of the excitement about our New Year's resolutions may be dying down, much like my excitement for Chelsea Football Club as we get further and further into the season. If you're looking for performance apparel that can help give you the extra push you need to keep up with your health goals, Viore has you covered. Viore creates incredibly versatile and comfortable activewear designed to look great in everyday life in and out of the gym, or in my case, on or off the tennis court. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint by offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. They are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowering your best active life. With Viore, you can feel good about the things you buy and also how they are made. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash MIB. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash MIB. Not only Will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns? Trust me, go to viore.com slash MIB and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. You're listening to the Men in Blazers Media Network, Suboptimal Radio. Os Carson's there, Bocce! from somebody called Rooney. Rooney Bargy. It's Roach, and you are listening to European Nights, presented by New Balance, the show that like some kind of bald Hoyland brother pops up every match day. There's Champions League, Europa League or Conference League action. And I'm joined by, so far there's only one of him. We haven't quite figured out how to clone him. A la Hoyland, the man who seems to have visited every cafe in far-flung European cities. So long there's a football stadium within walking distance. It's the venerable, vivacious and veritably wonderful it's your New York Times Chief Soccer Correspondent and my mate, it's Mr. Rory Smith. How are you doing? I'm terrible, Rory. But how are you? I'm all right. Yeah, not bad. I'm looking forward to uh, to the, the bit of the Champions League that matters now. It feels a little bit knockouty after the, you kind of have the phony war of the first four weeks, don't you? And then suddenly it all it all comes home to roost. God, why do we watch football for if not for phony wars? Oh, like the match at the top where Copenhagen came back to beat Manchester United 4-3. Quite hilarious, unless you happen to root for Manchester United. And I know it feels like an age ago, but it was just last European match day, a whole international break ago. 
Plus you throw in the Thanksgiving holiday. Rory, I actually spent the holiday back in Liverpool, my hometown, and it seems that this most American of holidays is starting to creep its way across the pond. There are all kinds of signs of Thanksgiving, which did surprise me because there were none. We didn't even know. Well, we didn't even know what the word thanks was when I was a kid. Clubs now release silly AI photoshops of their players enjoying a festive turkey and cranberry sauce. I mean, Halloween was nothing in England when I was a kid. It is now enormous over there. Rory, the big question people want to know, is Thanksgiving starting to become a thing in Britain? Well, you know me, Roger, I would I would take anything to change just one random Thursday in November into something special, but unfortunately <laughs> not. I, I can understand that the clubs are starting to, to what's the word, not pander to their American audience, but to, you know, treat their American audience. Yeah, I think the word's panda. They're, they're, they're showing respect to their American audience, saying that we recognise that something special is happening in your fine country today. Even my American friends here have not celebrated Thanksgiving, particularly this time around. They have previously, I have previously been offered things like yams, turkey, other things that Americans eat. Uh, but this year, it's, <laughs> the, the pickings have been relatively slim uh, in my particular corner of Yorkshire, which is, admittedly is not, you know, it's a very specific thing to complain about. But no, I would say that Thanksgiving remains American. Smith, you heathen bastard, I just want to go on the record as saying Milan's Polisic Thanksgiving video, if it doesn't win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, there is no justice in this world. There was a weird lull after the international break that we have to be honest about. It happened to fall right on Thanksgiving, a rare dead zone for the incessant football calendar, which honestly I need for purpose and meaning in life. But football is well and truly back in our face with the Premier League in our loving arms, arms that so recently held our relatives. And now the Champions League, Europa League and the Conference Leagues, all the leagues, leagues not yet discovered by humankind. Even those leagues are no out back so let's waste no more time to the football Neymar just onside now can they finish it off with a goal Pedro it's Neymar it's game set and match Barcelona that's what it sounded like the last time Barcelona won the Champions League in 2015 3-1 over Juventus so long ago Messi's beard hadn't even begun to grow in yet. And it is hard to believe. I know, I know, dear listeners, I feel the same. What? Barcelona hasn't won the Champions League in nearly a decade. In my mind, it just turned millennium. Barcelona's still the best team in the world, playing their singular style of football, paper-cutting all opponents to death. But that team was powered by youth products from La Masia, literally the farmhouse, the greatest branded youth development academy in modern football. And you know all their names by now because they won everything with Barca. They won the World Cup. Lionel Messi, Sergio Busquets, Jordi Alba. And you thought they came through the Inter-Miami Youth Academy, didn't you? They didn't. They had a history before that. Prehistory, current boss, Xavi alongside them, Andres Iniesta, Gerard Piquet, Pedro. The 2015 Champions League title was a fitting sunset 
before the darkness of the next decade kicked in, marred by financial troubles, accusations of paying off officials and their infamous divorce with Messi. To investigate whether the current generation of homegrown talent is nearly as good, we head in the words of this 1970s travelogue from Iberia Airlines to... This is Spain, an inspiring mixture of the old and the new. Barcelona, founded some 200 years before the time of Christ, is a prosperous industrial center. That's right. As your friend who studied abroad will gleefully correct you, Barcelona. Oh, what they didn't include in the travelogue was this crop of Barca talent, none of whom are currently old enough to drink. You got Pedri and Gavi, who've been running the midfield for Barcelona and Spain seemingly for years already. Left back Alejandro Bulde, who pushed out Alba, starts for Spain as well. Fermin, the Vermin Lopez, Mark Guillou, who scored 23 seconds into his debut, age 17. Uy, qué buena pelota y acá está, y la tienes, y uy, la tienes, y uy, puede ser la primera, viene el remate, gol. Gol, 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 gol. Gol. De Barcelona. El chico que debuta. Then there's Lamine Yumal, the youngest player to play for Barcelona in La Liga, the youngest player to start for Barcelona in La Liga, the youngest player to create a goal in La Liga. The youngest player to score in La Liga. You get the drip. To list his accomplishments in the article you wrote for the New York Times, Rory. And one thing you pointed out, that Guillou probably wouldn't be getting a crack at the starting lineup if we were born a decade earlier. So Rory, help us understand here. How much of this is just a reflection of a preternaturally talented group of kids? A pesky group of kids, but bloody good at football. How much of it is sheer dumb luck coming through when Barcelona were on a barren, barren run? Well, it's a little bit of both. So obviously, they're, they're, all of these players are incredibly talented. There's no, there's no question about that. And I think you can make the case that some of them would have come through in any era, regardless of the challenges they were facing. So Pedri and Gavi are the two that we kind of have the most evidence for. They look like... They would certainly have been part of the squad if they'd been born a decade earlier, if they were competing with Iniesta and Xavi and Busquets and Cesc Fabregas for, for midfield places. They would have been in and around the team, I think that's fair to say. The more interesting cases are, are players like Guiu and possibly Balde, I suppose, because Barcelona churn out talented kids all of the time. La Masia has a reputation, a deserved reputation, for being a, a talent hothouse because... There are always wonderful, wonderfully gifted footballers emerging at Barcelona. The thing that that changes, I suppose, the thing that differs from one generation to the next is the opportunity they're given at the end of that journey. So they join as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, whatever it might be. And by the time they're ready, 17, 18, 19, to start thinking about senior football, a lot depends on what's in their way. You know, if you are dealing with Pete Jordi Alba, <laughs> then you probably don't get a game. You you probably have to accept that the guy in front of you is one of the, the best left-backs of his generation. He fits the, t- the team's kind of template perfectly. You are not going to dislodge him. And, you know, for a couple of years, you might well be happy being his understudy. And for a couple of years, you might say, well, it's Barcelona. It's the club of my heart. I'm going to stay here and I believe in myself because all footballers believe in themselves. They believe in their talent, their ability. I back myself. How do you say that in Catalan? In Catalan, I don't know. I suppose yo me, yo me apoyo in Spanish, maybe. 
I, I'm happy to be corrected on that. But yeah, they, that is the kind of mindset that all footballers have, is that they they know they're talented, they believe that they are good enough or they are capable of being good enough to to dislodge basically anybody. Maybe Messi's an exception, but pretty much anybody else. And after a while, you have to make the call. You, you know, if you're Alejandro Balde minus 10 years, you have to have to decide, look, I'm not getting regular game time here. I'm going to have to go and sign for Real Betis. I'll have to go and sign for Mallorca or Valencia or whoever. I'll go to England. I'll play for Arsenal. I'll, I'll have a great career, but I won't make it at Barcelona. The only time, if you're an elite team, one of those kind of handful of 15, 20 teams who you know genuinely count as global behemoths, the only time that young players come through is essentially when you're in crisis, is when you have a load of injuries, when your senior players are all kind of past it and shouldn't have been signed in the first place. The Manchester United model. It's when results are on the downturn. It's when, when there are financial problems in the team. That's when young players are given a chance, largely out of desperation, because for all for all every club talks about pathways and about wanting to to kind of make the most of their academy, for all that fans love homegrown talent, for all that they want to see young players being given a chance. Ultimately, everybody involved is in the winning business and young players make mistakes. Young players don't have the experience to get through high pressure games without making errors. It will happen. It doesn't reflect badly on them. It doesn't mean they're not talented, but they need a little bit of leeway to, to learn and to thrive. And ultimately, at those teams at Manchester United, Manchester City, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, Bayern Munich, whoever it might be, you don't get that time until things have got so bad that they have to turn to you, that they have to take that risk. There are no other options. That's how young players come through, and that's what's happened at Barcelona now. They, The club has got itself into a position where there are no other options. So they've turned to La Masia again, and it turns out there's loads of talented players there. So let's go to provide the context for that. How did this Barcelona team become so threadbare so that these kids had a shot at that first team? Let's use the precise economic term here because we're precise people on this show. Barcelona are, well, they're broke. By the time Joan Laporta, the president in the heyday of Xavi's playing times, returned to be president once again in 2021, the previous board, they told off pretty much everything as if they'd attended the Mike Tyson School of Business. They reported a loss of half a billion, that's a billion with a B dollars in 2021 by mid-2022. They had overall debts of 1.3 billion. And the chief executive said the club was quite technically bankrupt and would have been shuttered if it were a public company. Two words any business loves to hear, technically bankrupt. Honestly, <laughs> bite your arm off as an Everton fan just to be technically bankrupt. The league essentially enforced a strict spending cap on the club. The board and the Laporta have been busy trying to meet this cash flow crisis by essentially mortgaging or pawning off the future, pulling a series of what they call financial levers until La Liga let them sign contract extensions of the like. Of course, none of this came in to salvage Messi's career at Camp Nou. The Argentine maestro left in tears to go to PSG, bless him, and then MLS. Did I say Camp Nou? Sorry, I actually meant Spotify Camp Nou, the club selling the rights to the team's historic 66-year-old venue in what sounds like a joke from some George Saunders 
dystopian satire. The club have also sold off future TV rights, a quarter of its production company, Barca Studios. Who do they sell it to? To a blockchain company. And if selling your production arm to an unknown blockchain company sounds like a bad idea, that's because it was. The money was never actually paid. Barcelona, they got to resell it again last summer. All of this has meant there's just no cash flow for new signings. Players on big contracts like Gerard Piquet, Sergio Busquets, Jordi Alba, they've left for free. Usman Dembele was flogged to PSG for $55 million. Overall, the club spent under $4 million this summer. Instead, signing free players like Ilkay Gundogan from Manchester City or loan deals like the Jaws, Cancelo and Felix. Overall, Barcelona's bought expenses under income, leading club VP Eduard Romeo to proclaim, quote, we have managed to seal the hole. <laughs> but Wilm must continue. This is him speaking to reduce the debt to a sustainable amount. Rory, given the club's finances, I mean, this is this is dark, apocalyptic stuff for a club as proud, as self-congratulatory, as self-perceived singular as Barcelona. How long can it be before they can actually afford to buy decent players if they don't have prodigiously talented youth coming out of that farmhouse woodwork at every position? Well, I think what's frustrating kind of from the outside as someone who's not a Barcelona fan, but is a, a kind of Barcelona well-wisher who, who has a sense of the, the sort of romance that surrounds Barcelona is that this summer, this summer just gone, 2023, I actually thought they were quite sensible. As you say, Cancelo and Felix on loan comes at a cost as you've got to pay their wages, but it, they're both proven talents. Felix has struggled a bit to kind of fit in. Ilkay Gundogan is a great character to have in, in a dressing room, hugely experienced, loves the city of Barcelona, had a personal reason to want to move to Barcelona. It was all quite sensible, to be honest. The issue was last summer, 2022, when they were pulling those levers and you saw them pawning off bits of the future. And then they were wasting the money. They were signing players that that are perfectly talented people like Rafinha, perfectly talented footballers, but were really at a premium for a club that didn't have any money to spend <laughs> and was mortgaging its future and its ability to spend money later on. Football has a natural corrective for teams that have run out of money, and that is that you have to sell your players and promote new ones that you've made yourself. That's kind of how new generations start. If you look through the Barcelona squad at the time, you sort of thought, well, look, you've got to Stadion, who's staying, the goalkeeper, one of the best in the world. Ronald Araujo, the Uruguayan defender, looks like a really good prospect. They picked him up from relatively cheap in Argentina. You knew that Gavi and Pedri were there, obviously. And you kind of thought, well, look, there's the, there's the core of a pretty good team there. Why don't you just wait a year, let them come together and then start adding players more judiciously but they would sort of seem to be thinking no we have to sign Jules Koundé and we have to sign him now there is no choice we can't possibly how can we be expected to, to survive if we don't overpay for a French utility defender and I think what you've seen over the last year is partly their approach working they won the title they they are back in the Champions League they will qualify from their group that was a huge problem last season that they they got knocked out in the group stage and they were relying on the on the income from that, from a, a deep run in the Champions League, effectively to help kind of balance the books again, they will get through the group stage this time. The draw was a little bit kinder to them. That may well mean that you know they can make it to the quarterfinals, which I think is probably Barcelona's limit. But they are doing it with a with a squad of players that has that infusion of youth that gives you the impression that maybe in two or three years' time, one of two things will happen. One of which is that Barcelona will have a largely homegrown, incredibly talented team again. You know, you'll have a midfield of Gavi and Pedri, you'll have 
Gamal up front. You, it might even be Dwyu. It, it probably won't be. But, you know, you'll have these players who've come through, Balde at left-back, Araujo. They will have a talented team again. Or they'll have sold one of them. And they'll have sold one of them for 100, 120, 150 million dollars. And that will have basically brought them back to where they need to be. It will give them the infusion of cash that they need to rebuild the rest of the team. You make them sound like a Catalan Ajax. They have the potential to do that. The, the way that, and I think the similarity, obviously the, the, there are links between the clubs. They, they both kind of basically work to the Johan Cruyff model. Cruyff having played for and coached both teams. I think that Barcelona, because they know the type of players they want to produce, they can reliably churn out players who can play to a relatively high level, certainly in Spain, probably anywhere else in Europe, who can be sold for five or 10 million euros. There'll be loads of players at like La Masia who are never going to make it at Barcelona because they're not quite good enough, but they are more than good enough to, to have really excellent careers in Holland or in, in the second division in Spain or maybe for Osasuna or whoever. And because Barcelona have this very obvious imprint that they that they leave on their players, that's in demand. If you you know if you, if you have a factory that produces technically gifted midfielders, someone's always going to want something from your factory, and you can make money off that. The thing that makes the difference is is something that you can't coach. You have to be to have the level of talent and determination, whatever else it is, that someone like Pedri has or Gavi. And at that point, you're getting into the the realms of best players in the world best players of their generation because by definition to be a starting midfielder for Barcelona you have to be one of the best players of your generation that is that is that goes without saying and to to a team in Barcelona's position where the finances are still limited where because of all the stuff they they've sold off last summer their spending capacity in years to come is reduced they will always only be able to spend a fraction of what Real Madrid theoretically can spend because of the financial problems they've had, because of all the stuff they've had to sell off. Someone like Gavi or Pedri is incredibly valuable because either you say, this is the cornerstone of our team, or you say, if we sell him, we can buy those four players and those four players give us a team again. There's a, there's a linked issue that I do want to touch upon quickly because as Barcelona have turned to the kids, almost become kid-dependent They've done so ferociously, and with that becomes wear and tear and proof that such a strategy is not a straight-line journey to success. In the international window, 19-year-old Gavi was agonising to watch Torres ACL against Georgia on duty for Spain. You know it's never a good sign when your teammates hold your jersey aloft after scoring in tribute to you as if you're a fallen soldier, as Fran Torres did. Gavi... Oh, it's so agonizing to see this out for the season, essentially, may miss the Euros. This is a kid, 19 years again, but he's already played 100 times for Barcelona. That is so much wear and tear on a young body, 27 times for Spain. Throw that in. Already, he's Barcelona's second most used outfielder with 999 minutes this season. Third most used, Balde, who's also struggled with injury. We've seen Pedri miss months of this season after being ground into the dirt by Spain and Barcelona, playing nearly every minute. Of course, this is not just a Barca problem. You can make a fairly elite 11 of gents, just out of gents who've done their ACLs this year, including Neymar, scored the game ceiling goal for Barcelona to win her last Champions League. She's now with Brazil and Al-Hilal. But after the break for COVID, there was a compressed season. Then a season interrupted by the self-inflicted wound that was a Winter World Cup. And then that rush back to playing. Basically, 
These players' bodies have not had a proper break in bloody years. In the Premier League, for example, injuries up 15% compared to the previous four years. The average length of injury nearly doubled in the top four leagues across Europe. When you look at Newcastle's decimation, Manchester United's decimation, we could go on and on and on. Rui, how much of all these injuries are just a delayed reaction to COVID in the Winter World Cup schedule? How much of it is Barcelona giving teenagers, essentially to use a phrase, grown-ass men, minutes, too many of them, too early? Yeah, I think there's there's two separate things. One is the overall kind of upward curve of injuries is is definitely becoming a thing. It's really hard to argue against that as a as a trend. And I think the impact of the compressed COVID season, then the fact there wasn't really a break before the next season, then the Winter World Cup, which we all knew, we all knew that those three things, as soon as the pandemic struck, you kind of thought, or as soon as football came back from the pandemic, you kind of thought, okay, there's going to be a problem here. At some point, you're going to have to allow a little bit of air into the system. You're going to have to ease the pressure on the on on everyone's bodies, because players are playing more and more and more, and the amount of recovery time they have is is reduced. And obviously, every so often, a player will bring this up, and is basically immediately pilloried, and they're told. You know, why are you complaining? And people will say, well, look, I, you know, I'm 24 stone and I play four times a week and I don't care. And I'd play five <laughs> times a week if I could. And you think, yeah, but Thank you're you, not. Twitter user XM47321. <laughs> and you think, yeah, but you're not playing to the same level. And also there's, you know, there's an element of, of fan interest here, I think that's really important to remember, which is that, you know, if you're buying a ticket or you're paying quite a lot of money for your TV subscription, or even if you're buying your Fire Stick and watching it all illegally, you are investing money in this product and you want to see the best product. You don't want to see a title decider in, in April where Erling Haaland and Rodri and Ruben Diaz and Edison and on the other side, I don't know, I don't know Son and Pierre-Emil Hoiberg and Christian Romero were all injured. God, Liverpool and Arsenal fans are loving this putative future. You know, you don't you don't want to see kind of games reduced by the fact that players are absent. You don't want to see the quality of those games dip because the players are playing within themselves because of injury or because of the fear of injury. It's not in fans' interest for, for players to be getting injured all the time. And I saw, it was interesting, I saw a tweet, not quite sure what you meant to say for tweets, but a thing on that site that used to be called Twitter, um, a little while ago from an Arsenal fan, I think, saying a player had been ruled out for a couple of weeks with a hamstring which is, you know, everyone kind of has this mental thing of like hamstrings two or three weeks. That's how long a player's out for with a hamstring injury. We all know these things. And it's just it's just in there. It's just in your brain. It's like hamstring two to three weeks. Yeah. And the fan was saying like whoever had got injured will be back in six weeks because all of our injuries seem to last twice as long as they, as they should do. <laughs> but I think, I think that is a trend a- across every club. I think players are finding it harder to recover from injuries because... There is an amount of wear and tear that ultimately is is building up to the whatever it is that pops. They're kind of waiting for their bodies to recover completely before they can say, actually, you have med- medical clearance to play again. So I think that's something that's happened across football. The the weirdness of the last three years in terms of the calendar and the overall pressure on the calendar with everyone throwing in more games, preseason tours, all that stuff. God. But then the the Barcelona specific thing, I think, is related to their age. It's the fact that they they found these talented kids. And they immediately started to rely on them. So you were playing them not just for an hour. You were playing them for 90 minutes. You were playing them in every game because, you know, when the pressure's on, you have to win. So even if there's a Copa del Rey game, you're going to play Pedri and Gavi. Why not? Champions League games, play Pedri and Gavi. Europa League games, play Pedri and Gavi. And at their age where you are still developing, you're still growing potentially, you're still kind of 
building your physique as a footballer, I think you are particularly vulnerable. But the other factor that that makes me quite angry, actually, is the national team, because both of them have been forced to play substantial parts of, of tournaments or qualifying for the national team when it is blindingly obvious that they should be given a rest. So I think Pedri played at the Olympics, and that is always called up for the Olympics. That is clearly not what should be happening. And I suppose there what you get is the flip side of what I was talking about. Yes, crisis brings opportunity for young players to play. It gives them their chance to to break into teams. But it also brings a peril because teams in crisis will latch on to anything they can to make themselves feel good again. Any sign of any kind of glimmer of hope is is something so precious you can't let it go. And in that moment, you tend to put too much pressure on on these talented players who are by definition still very fragile, almost theoretical things. Too much crisis can bring on too much opportunity. Number two, ease the kids in like Philip Foden. And number three, I do love your next level thinking that you're seeing amongst the players. Best way not to get injured is to stay out with injury. Oh, Godspeed, you make me think of Kevin De Bruyne, just that chronic build-up, just leading to an enormous spell out of the game. Come back soon, Kev, you beautiful human being. But tune in 3pm Eastern, Tuesday, November 28th, to find out which tween Barcelona <laughs> will turn to next against Porto. Each of these teams on nine points at the top of Group H in the Champions League. Next up, we're going to stick to Spain, but take our travelogue to Basque Country. That's after this break. This episode is presented by the GFOPs at New Balance. Explode down the pitch in the New Balance Furon V7 Pro FG Soccer Cleat. It is designed for the elite level player who craves simplicity and direct contact with the ground and the ball. The very same boots worn by Bukayo Saka and Raheem Sterling. New Balance, we got now. And men and Blazers, we like to believe more is more when it comes to football. Unless Everton are playing, in which case, oh, less is always more. But one thing you can do to enhance even the Everton watching experience is to visit the GFOPs at Prize Picks. They're America's number one fantasy sports app. Test your skills on Prize Picks this season. It's the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. If you've got the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Tappity taps, mostly just picking what categories you want Everton players to disappoint you in and smashing the less. thing I love about prize picks is, is how simple it is to use. They're now offering Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your account this soccer season. No more ferreting around in your wallet for that security code on your credit card that the computer never saves. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. That's Pericode MIB. Prize picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. It's Rog here to tell you about a product that I simply adore. It's been a long time staple in the Bennett refrigerator. Stoke cold brew coffee. Always bold, always smooth. Yes, that is the very same Stoke as in the mighty Wrexham Fortress known as the Stoke Kairas or the Stoke Racecourse Wrexham AFC's home. They support it. They support football, which is just one great reason to love this coffee. It is my go-to enjoy during the football calendar. Essentially, 
the opposite of Everton. And you can check out their full lineup of 48 ounce cold brew products, something for everybody from light to dark roast to seasonal favourites in a refrigerated multi serve format. I tell you this, as someone whose blood type is now officially Stoke Espresso Blend, have the coffee house experience in the comfort of your own home and do it now. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. And be sure to follow Wrexham AFC. Big love to all at Stoke. Courage. That's what it sounded like in the press conference of coach Imanol Aguasil after Real Sociedad won the Copa del Rey in 2020, ending a 34-year wait for silverware. I'm going to go from manager mode to fan mode, he said before singing, let's go Real to victory. We'll always be with you. Oh, there's nothing better than football lyrics filled with every platitude uh, known to humanity. He said, this is for the whole of Guipuzcoa, the smallest of the 50 mainland provinces in Spain, tucked there into the mountains on the border of France, but somehow still on the beach, an area <laughs> the size of New Jersey with 22, that's 22 Michelin-starred restaurants and littered with structural art. God, it sounds like the promised land, the breathtaking, a thousand-year-old city of San Sebastian, population just 187,000 people. Good Lord, I would love to go and eat some anchovies in San Sebastian. It's a rich, gorgeous coastal city, commercial and industrial hub that made its money in chocolates, perfumes and soap, all the good things in life. The region has the highest income per person in Spain, but it's chilled. Goalkeeper Alex Romero eats out at a cafe with his teammates hours before games. Too little fuss from any of the locals. Why would they make fuss when they got chocolates, perfumes and soap? Since the 1960s, a gentleman that you referred to in your article in the New York Times as the Rocket Man sets off flares after every goal in the Real Arena, two if they scored. Oh, a sad solo one, the loneliest number if they conceded. That Copa del Rey final in 2020, it wasn't at the Real Arena, but if it were, he would have set off two. Oh, of those beauties in the 1-0 win for La Real, which was the fourth major trophy in Sociedad history after back-to-back -back La Ligas in the early 80s and one other Copa del Rey in 1987. Another back in the knockout rounds of the Champions League for only the second time in club history in the group stages against Red Bull Salzburg, 3pm Eastern on Wednesday, November 29th. Oh, already secure of one of the top two spots in Group D. Incredible achievement. This is where Newcastle silky striker Alexander Izak came from, where Arsenal captain Marta Erdegaard reignited his career, where that delicious human being David Silva recently called an end to his 19-year career the summer after an ACL injury ruled him out for most of the season. Silva, the impish playmaker, who has a statue at Manchester City thanks to his decade there, just one of my favourite footballers of all time. The way he knew exactly what he was going to do with the ball before it came to his feet could just 
analyze time and space quicker than any human being I've watched other than Lionel Messi. Oh, with all these recent departures, Rory, tell me this, how are Sociedad somehow even better, arguably, than they've ever been? Well, I think to an extent, you can probably make a case that the Isaac sale, although it was was deeply disappointing, I think, for Sociedad at the time, because he had kind of blossomed into the star that that you thought he could be when he first came through in Sweden and then went to Borussia Dortmund. He he seemed to have found himself at Sociedad. And, you know, obviously the, the economics of football are what they are and you know that he's not going to stay there forever. But you maybe thought he might do another year or so. But then obviously Newcastle come in with an awful lot of money and Sociedad can't say no. That money has been reinvested. The club is extremely sensibly run. The last 20 years have been very sort of varied for Sociedad. There have been financial problems there. There has been there have been brushes with with status losses that I think have have spooked the club. Does it this is, remember, historically one of Spain's elite, one of the biggest six or seven teams in the country? You know, in the in the 1980s, it was Sociedad and Athletic Bilbao who who broke that duopoly of, of Real Madrid and Barcelona that for a while in the 1980s, the kind of epicenter of Spanish football was in the Basque country. So Sociedad are a big historic name. And I think they felt as though over the last 20 years, they've lost some of that status a little bit. And then under Alguacil, who's a who's a local guy who I think is kind of is, is part of the furniture of the club, really. Very unassuming, very modest, very much kind of part of the collective work that they're doing. They have strengthened extremely sensibly, extremely judiciously, and they've been able to invest money partly because of the Isaac sale. And they've done that by partly by looking for players who are maybe undervalued, who aren't being looked at by teams that probably should know better. And the best example of that is obviously Takafusa Kubo, the Japanese winner who's been a real jolt of excitement, not so much as surprise packaged as I think people knew what he was capable of, but he hadn't quite made it at Real Madrid. He'd, he'd done well out on loan. And at Sociedad, he really seems to have, have blossomed. They've got that relationship with Real Madrid. And then the other source of players, and an and unending one for years and years and years, is the Basque country itself. It's a place where players grow. Yeah, let's talk about this, both footballingly and horticulturally, because this is, this is incredible. This is befuddling. This is a thing of wonder. Football first came to this region, like so many regions, British expats flooding into the ports, kicking their footballs. That's the same story as what happened in Argentina. You just think of these, these sailors just seeing land and just genuinely leaping off the boat. And the first thing they do is just kick footballs ashore en masse. That's how I mentally picture it. But that's what they did back in the late 1800s. To this day, hundreds of children play on the beaches oh, that they came into daily. And many, many, many of them turn out to be quite bloody good. The province, we've already said this, still can't get over it, has more Michelin-starred restaurants per square mile than just about anywhere else on earth. And similarly, Gipuzkoa has more footballers per capita than the rest of Spain, with four clubs in La Liga. There could be a fifth if Ibar get promoted, which is wild in a province that has less than 2% of Spain's population. One of those teams, Athletic Bilbao, famously only employs Basque players. And Real Sociedad are not as strict, but 16 of their current first team at La Real came through the youth system at Zubayeta. That's also where coach Emmanuel Alguacil came from, first as a deeply mediocre fullback, then as a youth team director. And 
He's a fascinating character, really one of the most reluctant head coaches in football. Pulled into the gig several times now, a bit like James Brown being crowned live on stage whenever other managers get fired. He admits that the responsibility gets to him. He has to take sleeping pills to help with the stress, the sleepless nights. Barcelona reportedly considered hiring him before they opted for Xavi, but it's unclear if he'd willingly leave a team. He's essentially raised since they were kids. All of that talent in the Bass region, Rory. I mean, there's enough to power four teams in La Liga. The entire Athletic Bilbao roster again. And this Real Sociedad team are in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. Just what is in the water of La Concha Beach? Well, I would say there's there's probably two things, but the ultimate answer is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it may just be one of those kind of cultural, geographic, historical things that becomes so self-fulfilling so cyclical that it 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 kind of just becomes nature if that makes sense so the Basque country was a relative early adopter of football and if you looked at spanish football in the in the 1920s and 30s say which was when it was first really becoming as big a thing as it was in england the Basque clubs were were attracting high level coaches they were getting foreign foreign coaches coaches largely from england to come and work with their players there was a team in iran which is it runs a little town on the border Real Run is very much not a thing anymore. It's not a team that you would have heard of. But they hired a guy called Steve Bloomer, who was kind of the, the 1920s David Beckham, to be their coach. And that's unthinkable now that, you know, that a tiny team from Iran, a border post between Spain and France, would be able to, to attract this big name player to come and come and coach them. But but Iran did, and Bloomer made an impact. And Iran, I think, won various kind of local cups or national you know, they com- they competed nationally but they were they were something of a force so i think there was an element of there's an element of history in it the Basque country's got all the kind of right ingredients to play a british style of football you know it's it rains a lot and it's windy and i think that's why the game kind of caught light there quite quickly and the other thing is that is the competition that that, that has led to that across the Basque the Basque provinces there are a multitude of clubs. There's there's loads of kind of youth teams. There's a team in every tiny village. There's a team in every town. There's lots of teams in every town. And they often have, certainly this is the case in Navarra, which is where Osasuna are based, which is is not Basque, but is Basque adjacent. <laughs> they have a kind of, they have a link into the into the professional team. So there's a, there's a really ready pathway. And because the Basque teams are looking for players, other teams go to the Basque country and look for players because they know that Athletic and, and Real Sociedad and Alaves and the others are looking for players in that area. And I think it creates this kind of sense of opportunity. There's a historic connection. You'll see quite often that that teams from outside the Basque country in Spain will loan young players out to Basque teams. And it's because they know that in the Basque country, they play a very competitive style of football. And Anyone who's watched Real Sociedad in the Champions League this season will know that they are playing attractive, expansive, attacking, very modern football. They're not a kind of British-style, up-and-under, up-and-at-them sort of team. But I think Basque football, in general, historically, has been very physical, very competitive, quite combative. You know, the fields aren't as good, the stadiums are quite intimidating, quite hostile. It's a really kind of distinct taste of football for young players. And that obviously helps players from outside the Basque region develop. But if you've come through that inside the Basque region, 
you probably have quite a good chance of having all of the psychological, all the mental traits that you need to be a footballer. I think what that mixture of history and geography and competition and culture has has made is a place that is perfect for developing footballers. And that enables Athletic to have a squad that's just got Basques in it. It enables Sociedad for a long time to have a dual policy of you are either Basque or you were foreign. Sociedad wouldn't play Spanish players. They would they had to be born in the Basque country or imported from abroad. It's enough to sustain all of those teams, not just at the professional level, but all of the amateur ones, all of the semi-pro ones as well. And I guess there's an element of speculation here. But I think if you're Basque, you probably think you've got a decent chance of being a footballer because you know that you've got Bilbao, you've got Sociedad, you've got Osasuna, <laughs> you've got Alaves. They're all looking for Basque players. So it feels realistic to become a footballer. And that, I think, is probably quite an important part of it. Oh, Spanish by birth, Basque by the grace of God. But it's not just the players. The Basque region grows high-level, elite coaches, again, as if on trees. Of course, there's not room for all of them at La Real. Some of them have had to find employment at far-flung places across the continent, even across the channel. Premier League, see nearly half a dozen of them in the past year or two. I mean... Basque managers are to the Premier League currently what Michelin-starred restaurants are to San Sebastian. Mikel Arteta at Arsenal grew up playing barefoot on the sand on the beach in San Sebastian. And Doni Iraola now at Bournemouth, doing much better now than he was at the start of the season. That charismatic helmet head. Oh, smiling wonder. Unai Emery with Aston Villa. Former Spain boss Julen Lopetegui was in charge of Wolves until he wasn't. Javi Gracia, he's been around Watford, Leeds. Then there's, of course, Xavi Alonso, who deserves his own show and will soon get one. Currently topping the Bundesliga with Bayer Leverkusen in the most fascinating way. And you ask Mikel Arteta why so many great coaches come from the Basque region. His answer is, quote, the food. We have the best food in the world. Your best restaurants by square meter. It's the most beautiful city. Good one, Mikel. That really helps us understand it. In fact, I understand your region about as well as I do understand why you're not playing Aaron Ramsdale. Uh, I'm sure there's a reason you just didn't give it to us. But two questions here, really. What are Basque coaches like as a whole? Why are so many of them from such a small province, Rory? You know, is it just as simple that the great Dave Moyes coached there in 2014-15? Is it all just his coaching tree? I think a lot of it is probably down to David Moyes. Uh, <laughs> I think there is an element of Basques being good travellers, which sounds a bit stupid, but the, but the Basques, a lot of the original wealth centuries ago was to do with fishing, and Basques bestrode the waves. They, they went out and explored the world, and I think that's a crucial thing for a manager, particularly to leave Spain. You have to have a kind of willingness to, to travel, to explore, and I think that that is part of, of the Basque character, which sounds like a stupid thing to say. We're not really meant to generalise about people, but I think it's probably true of Basques. I think that they grow up in a in a very competitive environment. That's really important. I think they're, they're exposed to two traditions that are quite useful. One is the Spanish idea of retaining possession, of technical perfection, of of all the things we associate with Spanish football. And the other thing is the the, the sort of not shameful secret really, but the kind of the other side of Basque football, which is much more industrial, much more industrious, much more kind of agricultural, perhaps we used, to, as we, we maybe would have said a few years ago, Rog, Basque football is a little bit more gritty than we maybe think of Spanish football with all, all of its finery. And those two things, I think, combine to make Basques quite adaptable to different football and cultures. Basque managers, people who've come through Basque football 
are quite com naturally competitive. They're used to thriving in, in a really competitive environment. And I, w I spent a little bit of time with Xabi Alonso recently, as we will discuss at a later date. And someone asked him a question said, you've, um, you know, people say in Germany, where he's obviously coaching by Leverkusen so, so, so impressively, you know, people say that you seem quite German. And he kind of laughed and he went, no, 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 no. I'm 100% Basque. I'm pure Basque. And it was that laugh of someone who thinks, okay, look, this is a this is a minor point. This is just a minor correction. It's all good fun. But also I'm really very Basque. Do not say I'm anything but Basque. And I think that that there maybe is a bit of truth in that, that, that the Basque country is different to the rest of Spain. It's a different character. It's a different mindset. It's maybe a little bit has a little bit more in common, or that there are things that you can find in common in other countries that make it easier for you to adapt to working there. Whereas if you're from Andalusia, say, maybe it's a little bit harder. So I think those two things maybe explain why Basque coaches have done so well, both in Spain and and elsewhere. It's not to do with some special stool inspired by David Moyes or even by John Toshak, Rod, who coached Sociedad in the 1980s. The Liverpool legend. I think it's more to do with the footballing heritage, to quote Jose Mourinho, not masked, uh, and that willingness to travel. Oh, God bless Real Sociedad. I can't wait to watch them after listening to that. I'm still can't get over the fact that Jerry Alonso just laughs when he said uh, to be quite German. No, 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 no. You can watch how the team sets out against Red Bull Salzburg, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, November the 29th. We will be back to dive into the wonders of the Europa League and, of course, the greatest of all, saving best to laugh, the mighty Conference League, after this break. Sammy here from Men in Blazers Early Kickoff, a 10 minute podcast with all the daily football news and gossip straight from the back pages of Europe's newspapers. Each morning, our team here in the UK round up everything you need to know in the football world and deliver it straight to your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. So, if that's something you might be up for trying out, search for Men in Blazers Early Kickoff wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe so you can get a 10 minute daily dose of football news every day when you wake up. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta Sky Miles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami. There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Man. 
Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Isco, what a touch. Abdel Zelzouli away from Iago. This would be some goal, which he gets. Brilliant, Betis. 4-1 the lead. Abdel Zelzouli with the finish. But there was some genius in the build-up. Oh, Isco, the gent who makes man buns and casual no-look backhill volleys all seem silky and effortless. That was Real Betis. Oh, how I adore them in the last match day, putting the 94th minute icing on the cake, the bun on the man, if you will, of a 4-1 win over Aris Limassol of Cyprus in the Europa League. Take that, Aris Limassol. So let's talk Europa, Rory. What's the game that you will be watching just salivating like Pavlov's dog if Pavlov's dog was knee-deep into the Europa League this week? Well, so I'm intrigued by the fact that if you look at Roma's group, Slavia Prague are, I think, joint top with Roma and should qualify ahead of Servette and Sheratiraspol. And Sparta Prague are still in with a shout of qualifying from the group that involves Betis and, and Rangers. And they've got they've got Brian Prister in charge, who is uh, manager at uh, Michelin uh, one of the most innovative clubs in Europe for a long time, probably still are now, haven't checked recently. But Prista was a key part of that that growth. Tim Sparv, the former Finnish captain, all-round good egg, is their assistant manager, I think. Uh, they, could, they can qualify, but they need to beat Betis and hope that someone along the line does them a favour by beating Rangers or Betis in the last game. So I think I think that one feels finely poised. It's Sparta's last chance saloon. Uh, there's a there's something interesting in the Czech Republic going on. I think with those two teams, it'd be great to see two Czech sides in the in the round of 32. So I'll be watching Sparta Pride against Real Betis. Oh, that game, 12.45 p.m. Eastern on Thursday in my beloved Conference League. I will, of course, be tuning in to our old faves, Brodo Glimt. Oh, does the Trinidad and Tobago, two teams in one as they take on Swiss side Lugano, 12.45 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, November 30th. As we all know, Bodo Glimpse roster, essentially all Norwegian, plus a token Dane or two. And there's one exceptional far-flung foreign talent whose goals, I believe, will power them before he sold for big, big money. Previous variation of this was Bayer Leverkusen's centre-back bully, Victor Boniface. Well, the newest iteration is Faris Mubagna, who plays internationally for Cameroon but was developed here in the United States. Came through the Monte Verde Academy in Florida before joining Bethlehem Steel. True, in the mighty USL, 23 years old, 23 goals so far this season. Incredible. Look for him to Mumbagda goals against Lugano on Thursday. Raw, just one last item remains on our travelogue. You and me, we're going out to eat in Basque Country. There's so many Michelin star restaurants, you practically trip over them. Just walking to the beach, narrow it down for us. Where are we going? Well, I mean, I think we, I think we might have mentioned this before, but I, the last time I was in San Sebastian, I, I, I eschewed the the Michelin starred restaurants because they're too expensive, and prefer to kind of wander around the old town, hitting I think there's two hundred or so pincho bars, little that you buy a little kind of piece of bread with a fish on it, and have one of those with a little drink, and then you move on to the next one, have something else, maybe a nice filled croissant. 
then another drink and then you, you wander onto the next one and you, you kind of eat all evening. That's kind of my ideal meal situation. But the thing that I remember alongside that was that San Sebastian is a stunningly beautiful city. It's, it is genuinely kind of the perfect place to spend a few days, Rog. But once you've eaten all that, all those pinchos, all those bits of fish on bread. All those carbs. You just, you kind of want to relax, take a bit of wellness time, you know, maybe think a little bit, a little bit about your health, your mental health, your kind of, you need to take the load off. You need to think about all the things that you've eaten and, and why you ate so many of them and whether it really is suitable to have 12 pinchos in one sitting before <laughs> moving on to the next one. So I think we might go to a little thalassotherapy spa which is a, a, a place that uses warmed seawater, salt water, to kind of ease away the aches and the pains and the stresses and the strains of, of producing many, many podcasts, running a podcast empire, according to The Hollywood Reporter. I think that will help you relax, help you take a load off, and also get yourself ready for another night of eating pinchos, which I can't remember what any of these places are called. They're just on the street. Literally everything they produce is amazing. I'd love to live in San Sebastian, but I would be... I, I would last, I don't know, a matter of months before I'd have to be winched out of my house. I I can't live in a place where the food is that good. It's not really possible for me. Uh, but I think as long as you're dipping into the seawater occasionally, then then that's probably keeping the right balance between body and soul. You'd be one of those 24 stone people shouting at Barcelona young players for the mooning about, uh, <laughs> I mean, I play four times a week. Play four times a week. As you get into the old crab. I've got to say, Raw, where there's 22 Michelin starred restaurants, leave it to you to throw a curveball uh, and go for that therapeutic delight. I would love to sit beside you in a spa, in our towels, sweating out all that baked spider crab uh, in that sauna. You're a beautiful human being. It's been a joy to be with you and take these two journeys. I found it deeply refreshing of mine, to be candid. I can't wait for these games to wash over us, like the waves themselves on La Concha Beach. I'd love to go to San Sebastian. That's my takeaway from this. It's like a travel show, yet I never leave the podcasting studio. You are a treasure, Rory Smith. But I don't want to give your jaw an overuse injury like some prodigiously talented Barcetine. So I'm going to let you get your rest. Godspeed. I now quite want to go to San Sebastian as well, to be fair. <sighs> one day. One day we'll actually get to go to one of these places together instead of just talking about them. This pod, all talk, no action. We'll be back in two weeks for the final round of the group stages. The phony war in our beloved Champions of Europa League and yes, even the mighty Conference League when they return for the knockout in February. Courage, or as they say in San Sebastian, come in! Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Okay, so if you had a time machine, how far mm -hmm. in time would you need to go back to be a dominant basketball player of that era? <laughs> I need to go to when Bob Cousy was playing. Back I in, would, in the plumber days? 27-year-old Shay would give Bob Cousy the f***ing business. <laughs> He's not guarding me. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are 
back. We have a new podcast from Wondering. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the best. Each week, Shay and I are combing through all of the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling ones, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Six Trophies ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.